This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. It's four months since some of the nation's most important magazines vanished when offshore owners Bauer Media pulled the plug during lockdown level four. But now Bauer's found some buyers and it says some top titles will be back within weeks. But in what shape and what's the plan? Also, the Unite to Fight COVID-19 ad campaign has been lauded as highly effective and the Prime Minister said it was crucial to crushing the curve so quickly, but it wasn't cheap. And while crude racial stereotypes, which once appeared in our adverts, are mostly a thing of the past now, is advertising and marketing actually more diverse now than it was back in the day? We ask if the business is addressing its diversity deficit. But first, political reporting's been preoccupied this past week with a sudden surge of political resignations and scandals, raising fears that big election issues are being pushed into the background at a critical time. It has been another seven days of upheaval for the National Party. We understand our interview with Nikki Kay this time last week was the last straw for National's short-lived leadership team. Of course, Todd Muller resigned, Nikki Kay and Amy Adams have announced they're leaving politics, and nine weeks before the election, National has a new leader. If you were watching TVNZ1 seven days ago at 9.30 in the morning, you might have heard Jack Tame introduce the Q&A show like that with plenty of big issues to talk about. Let's begin with policy, and how nice to have some policy finally to discuss in this campaign. So your infrastructure package will cost $31 billion. And while Jack Tame did give her a grilling about that epically costly but not quite comprehensively costed transport plan, it wasn't exactly the issue which ate up much of the oxygen in the media this past week, nor indeed was any other pre-election political party policy. It was all about resignations and disgrace. The next day, last Monday, Rangatata MP Andrew Falloon suddenly quit. Initially, it was for mental health reasons and some unspecified mistakes, according to a statement to the media authorised by his party's leader. But before long, and after some probing by reporters, it emerged that those mistakes were sackable offences in themselves. The transmission of pornographic images to at least four women, some of which were investigated by the police at the time, though not deemed prosecution-worthy. And the timeline of who knew what and when about all that prompted political reporters to see Judith Collins' TV interviews last weekend in a very different light. Last Sunday, Judith Collins was also interviewed on Three's show The Hui and the day before that by News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien on Three's weekend politics show News Hub Nation. How would you rate those first five days from one to ten? One being kind of Bill English circa 2002, middle Muller Bridges and ten being John Key at the height of his popularity? Well, I hope that everyone feels like it's a ten. And knowing what she knew by last Tuesday, Tover O'Brien was not giving Judith Collins 10 out of 10. If you've got a guy who's sending drunken pictures to a teenager, you should have dealt with that immediately, Friday night or Saturday morning. Why did you wait? I am not going to address issues like this by phone or email or text. Instead of taking action, she played up to the cameras in photo ops and did the weekend current affairs shows. I will take responsibility. You didn't want to overshadow your weekend media? No, I wanted to deal with him directly. And knowing that the Prime Minister's office had received the initial complaint before the National Party leader herself, Tove O'Brien went on to say it was a plague on both their houses. Given the seriousness of these allegations, both National and Labour needed to act with more haste. Andrew Falloon was an MP for five days longer than he should have been. 
Now, that opinion was criticised as an overreaction by some other commentators or overreach as far as declaring that an elected MP should have been kicked out of the House of Representatives the very day that his behaviour first came to the attention of the Prime Minister's office. Though Tover O'Brien was not alone in that. And I resent that this guy will be paid for the next two months or probably longer by us as a Member of Parliament when he should be hooked immediately. That was Marcus Lush on News Talk ZB last Monday night, though he was more mad about the way that mental health was cited as a reason for Andrew Falloon quitting and not his misconduct. And I think it's offensive to anyone that does have mental health issues that they would blame this on that. I just find it unbelievable. Marcus Lush and others in the media were also turning the spotlight on Judith Collins' handling of the episode, following a lot of media praise for her since she succeeded Todd Muller the week before as National Party leader. Indeed, the New Zealand Herald published an editorial calling her a success just one day after she won the leadership vote. And last Monday night, Marcus Lush saw it like this. Can I just address something else, saying that I think, right? Being in the media for a long time... Um, not as a reporter, but as a, as a host, the RDR, and seeing how other people run their media, you know, praise for Collins and stuff like that, I reckon the media, they don't realise it, but the media always have a vested interest in a close election. They're always trying to talk up a great battle. And I reckon that that's behind a lot of their commentary. They want Collins to be good because they want it to come down to the wire because it's good for journalism and it's exciting for the election and it's good for news. I reckon, so I reckon that's what happens when people start praising Collins and stuff. I think they're unaware of it, but they're desperate for a close battle because it makes it seem more exciting. And that was not exactly dispelled by the Herald the next day, casting the first question time in Parliament to pit the two new leaders against each other as Stardust versus The Crusher, Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins face off in Parliament. And when that was all over, Stuff, which recently trumpeted its commitment to kicking out the clickbait, ran the headline, PM resists the crusher in first question time clash. Now the same day, Stuff had an online headline quoting Andrew Falloon's father as being shattered by developments. He declined to tell Stuff how his son was coping and told them he hadn't actually spoken to his son yet. And Stuff also reported the original complainant was a 19-year-old University of Canterbury student. Now that's not enough to actually identify her, but still that's more information than most people would really need to know. Soon after, the New Zealand Herald also reported the ex-MP's parents as shattered, while NewsHub sent a reporter to their door. Nor was his family aware, his mother today reeling. How's he doing? Um, not, not very well. No. How are you? Not great. No, I'm no, sorry. No, no comment apart from that. But the next day, last Wednesday, the boot was on the other foot. Immigration Minister Ian Lees Galloway was sacked after information about an affair was sent to Judith Collins, who then sent it on to the Prime Minister's office, but only after she mentioned it without naming names on the AM show that morning, prompted like this by the host Duncan Garner. Have you received anything on about Labour ministers or Labour MPs? Um, I have, actually, and, um, and I have uh, advised the Prime Minister and I've asked for anybody who has that information to send it directly to her. When did this happen? Um, oh, actually, just yesterday, but I passed it on, and I'm not going to be indulging in any attacks on uh, Labour on these things. So you've because you've passed a file or pass a, a tip-off uh, to the It's, it's a tip-off to the Prime Minister. About, I think about, that's, about a Labour Party minister? Yes, that's right. About uh, certain behaviours? 
Now, after Ian Lee's Galloway was dismissed later that morning, Newstalk ZB's political editor Barry Soper said the rumour mill over his behaviour had been working overtime for months and he reckoned the Prime Minister would have been the last to know about it. Now, some saw this as an echo of dirty politics in the past, where politicians, lobbyists and bloggers combined to put politically charged information into the public domain, with the media then amplifying it and harvesting the headlines. And the scandals about MPs' conduct have squeezed significant political news out of the headlines this past week. On Wednesday night, News Hub's Mike McRoberts solemnly said seven MPs in the past fortnight have announced they'll be quitting politics for a range of reasons, and then he said this... Now the two leaders are scrapping over who handled sensitive information with more integrity. Political editor Tover O'Brien reports on a parliament in disarray. But in spite of a bit of chaos within our two top political parties, Parliament is actually working pretty much as it usually does. This very week there's been a relatively orderly debate in the House and legislation has been advanced and parliamentary committees have met just as they were scheduled to do, which is good because our democracy and civil society depends on that and not on ministers and MPs and their personal conduct. Under the questioning headline, Where Will the Political Sackings and Scandals End?, Herald political reporter Claire Trevett said this. The challenge for all leaders is to clean up their own house, not to point at the neighbours and say it was just as filthy. At the moment, all the voters see of Parliament is a pigsty. Meanwhile, it's stuff. Political reporter Henry Cook was worried about this too, under the headline, Politics is worth saving, but is Parliament? What an awful place. That's what any right-thinking individual would have to think about Parliament reading the horrid river of news stories from the last month. The easy answer, said Henry Cook, would be to burn it all down and start again, but that would be the wrong answer, he reckoned. Some of our country's most committed public servants spend long days and nights attempting to make the country a better place, he wrote. For every horrid incident, you can actually find some backbench MP, he said, plugging away on a worthy issue with little media attention. Henry Cook wound up with this thought. The grubby stuff is what people remember, but there's a lot more to the circus. And it's the media, of course, which choose which bits of the circus to highlight. And Henry Cook acknowledged that one reason politics at Parliament seem, in his words, so weird, is that it's so closely observed by the media. And some in the media pointed out that, actually, we've been here before. In another article last Wednesday, Stuff's Andrea Vance pointed out that a series of bullying and misconduct incidents led to what Andrea Vance called a damning report on Parliament as a toxic workplace just last year. Consultant Debbie Francis recommended an independent commission for parliamentary conduct to investigate complaints and also a shared parliamentary workplace code of conduct. But while none of the reporters referring to that this week pondered the role the media might play in turning the place toxic, the Francis report did like this. Bullying and harassment is also alleged by respondents from managers to staff, among staff, among MPs, from the public to staff and MPs, and from members of the press gallery. The report went on to say that inappropriate behaviour by members of the press gallery or media more generally was identified by a significant number of respondents, and some of them felt that journalists in Parliament sometimes crossed the line into disrespect in pursuit of clickbait. Their behaviour can further fuel the overall environment of gossip and intrigue. Now, at that time, the Parliamentary Press Gallery issued a statement to MediaWatch to say we are happy to respond to the allegations made against the Press Gallery and work with the Speaker on the proposed Code of Conduct for Parliament while safeguarding the independence of the media. 
and journalists would probably resist any effort to bind them into a code of conduct applying to politicians, lest they be barred from robust confrontations in their quest for answers to questions of public importance. One of those noting the lack of progress this past week was the political editor of newsroom.co.nz, Sam Sashdeva, under the headline, People Deserve Better from Parliament. Voters, he said, must demand a higher quality of conversation and the media must help facilitate it and our politicians must live up to it. But on Twitter, Sam Sashdeva also noted that those gasping now about what seemed to be a week of unprecedented turmoil in and around Parliament should actually look back to this point in the last election campaign. Eight weeks before Election Day in 2017, we had yet to experience the replacement of Andrew Little by Jacinda Ardern, the retirements of two party leaders, Peter Dunn and Materia Ture, and Winston Peters' super overpayment leak. Now back then, all those events also got plenty of political coverage, but there is one important difference this time round, as RNZ's political editor Jane Patterson pointed out on Morning Report last Thursday. We are in the middle of a global pandemic. We are facing um, a huge economic challenge, and the, we are eight weeks out from the election. So we need to the the MPs and the media need to start focusing. Actually, what are the policies? What's the plan from these two parties? I'm sure everyone will really be hoping to turn their attention back to those incredibly important issues and actually hear. Um, what the political parties intend to do to get New Zealand through this COVID crisis. And perhaps there is an upside to getting the scandals out of the way early and rogue MPs out of the frame. More time for coverage of things like that that matter. Overseas, COVID is popping up again, as we all know, and countries are locking back down. And while they are popping and locking, we are doing sweet as here in New Zealand. And that's all because those visitors can't come here right now. So why the heck did we just kick off a massive global tourism campaign? Good question there from Patrick Gower on the project on 3 last Monday night. And co-host Jesse Mulligan asked Tourism New Zealand's CEO why New Zealand was spending millions on a video ad campaign promoting the country offshore in the coming months. Stephen, why the heck are you advertising for a country that's currently closed? That's a great, great question, Jesse. I've probably been asked that a few times the last couple of days. The reality is tourists don't turn up here in New Zealand the day after they decide to come here. In fact, in some of our long-haul markets, it can take anything from 9 to 18 months before someone actually eventually arrives in New Zealand. So keeping our brand alive in the hearts and minds of potential consumers or future visitors is incredibly important at the moment. Well, it seems like a bit of a gamble that they will remember us when overseas travel and tourism and study become options again somewhere down the line, but no one knows when. But it's not a gamble for our ad agencies involved or for the media carrying those ads and charging for them. The same night over on TVNZ1, it was apparently news that some marketing people were urging companies here to keep on spending on ads. It's no surprise many businesses have been hard hit by COVID-19, but it seems it's also changed the way many are promoting their products or services. Experts say even cash-strapped companies should continue advertising if they want to remain in the forefront of consumers' minds. And some of those experts were, unsurprisingly, in the marketing game. 
It's definitely the dilemma, isn't it? You know, why are we spending on this when potentially we can't sell? But this business advisor says keeping front and centre of the customer is vital. Attention is obviously what everybody's chasing. Uh, and if people don't know who you are, then they're not going to come and engage with your business. Forced to stay low. But COVID-19 has also been an opportunity for some in the industry as RNZ reported the next day. The government's released a list of 28 contractors it used as it got to grips with coronavirus. It includes marketing and communications teams, policy advisers and the man picked to lead the all-of-government response. Ben Strang, our reporter, has been going through the numbers. How much then did the government spend and who with? RNZ reporter Ben Strang said the answer to that was $16.4 million, and lots of that spent on ads. The vast majority of that was destined for two major communications firms who we understand were working on the messaging we all saw throughout the alert levels. The first was Cleminger BBDO. My understanding is that they helped come up with some of the simple but effective messaging like stay home, save lives, the big yellow alerts we saw online and on the telly, those sorts of things. They had a $3 million contract. And it wasn't just Ben Strang who found those messages simple but effective. As the COVID alert campaign rolled out in all media, the ads caught the attention of the UK-based design guru Alice Rawsthorne. And in a live broadcast on her Instagram channel Design Emergency earlier this month, she lavished praise on the designer from Cleminger BBDO. Now, Unite Against COVID-19 has done this brilliantly, which is why Paola and I are so excited that Mark has agreed to come and talk to us about it today. So, Mark, first of all, congratulations on the campaign. And secondly, um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Yeah, thanks, Alice. And hello, everyone. Nice to meet you all. Now, when the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern appeared on Morning Report later on Tuesday, she said that all this was money well spent, getting crucial messages across, and that, in turn, was crucial to the entire effort to crush the curve. But the official figures released this week showed Cleminger BBDO's contract was actually dwarfed by another one, as Ben Strang reported on Morning Report last Tuesday. But the biggest earner was another advertising firm, OMD, who were budgeted to be paid $12 million. Now, OMD says on its website it's the world's biggest media network, working in over 100 countries, so the government bought in the big guns when it came to trying to get its message across around COVID-19. OMD was paid $12 million for its role in the media response campaign that left ZB's Mike Hosking gasping, OMG. Is communication important? Broad question. Yes, it is. Of course it is. But do you need to pay $16 million for it? No. Which is what makes this so egregious. While the main job of ad agencies and communications companies is to persuade us to do the right thing in public education campaigns or buy one thing and not another on behalf of advertisers, they also have to reflect us, the world we live in, and its values. Currently, the Black Lives Matter movement has prompted many industries, including the media, to examine their own record on race and diversity and whether they're part of the problem or the solution. So what then are the advertising and marketing industries doing about that? Well, one thing is a marketing campaign called Faces of Our Industry, created by the ad industry news website Stop Press. To say that I I do believe in the last five years particularly, there's been an acceleration of attention to issues of diversity and inclusion for the better. And my hope is that it's not going to go away and it's not one of those things where you have activism for a short amount of time and then it disappears. Ad agency creative director Kim Pick there in one of the Faces of Our Industry videos released recently. 
Now, the umbrella group representing most of the major ad agencies and communications companies here in New Zealand is the New Zealand Commercial Communications Council. It's had an inclusiveness and diversity group since 2016. The current chair of it is Megan Clark-Cook, managing partner of the Wonderman Thompson Agency in Auckland. We obviously acknowledge that our industry isn't as diverse as it needs to be. We know this because we've we've spent some time over the last few years doing some research. We want to start with the data and really, really understand what that looked like. But in 2018, a study done here, predominantly European and, and Pākehā, uh, 87% overall and overwhelmingly so in mm. the senior leadership. So that's a couple of years ago. Um, mm. But it does say also 90% of those surveys saw diversity as a benefit to the workplace. So is there mm. a kind of consensus on what needs to happen? Absolutely. Look, I think um, we have a huge responsibility as communications industry to represent all the people in New Zealand in the right way, in a way that is relevant. And, you know, hand on heart, we can say that that hasn't been properly represented. There's a lack of Māori and Pacific people right the way through, and we need to understand, A, why we're not attracting full diversity into our industry, and why we're not keeping them. And that, so that's diversity and inclusion together. Yeah, because um, the survey did, mm. did also indicate, didn't it, that um, this is all up to individual agencies that, that make up your industry and they'll all have their own policies, but that when surveyed, some people weren't aware if their companies either even had one or if they did exactly what it was and whether it came down to things like recruitment or not. Yeah, it has. So the first survey we did, there was a, there was a terrible lack of, um, even at a, at, a, at a leadership level, lack of awareness of whether their company had a, a policy. There is more awareness now of companies have gone ahead and actually formed policies and better still have communicated those policies to their people. What we've realised out of the last study is that we need to build diversity with Māori and Pacifica young people coming into our industry. So what we've done is we've commissioned um, at an industry level a research company to look specifically at Māori and Pacifica young people from the um, from year 13, year, year 12, year 13 up to find out why they're not joining our industry, and then also for people who have joined our industry, why they have potentially left. So once we've done that research, we will then actually look at a, a full programme of how then to to best communicate with uh, that part of our population, really strong practices of inclusion. We'll first find them and encourage them to come into our industry because it's incredibly important that we have them throughout, particularly in our creative parts of our industry. And there's a whole lot of work that we're doing around that. And um, we're, we're on the journey. We... We have an incredibly engaged board and uh, on the board that we have representation of every single one of the big networks and also some of the, we have representation from some of the smaller agencies as well um, on the board and they, I speak with them regularly about what needs to be done. They are taking, you know, they're leading this this project around Māori and Pacifica kids coming into the industry um, alongside me. So there is a this huge engagement, and it's very genuine. And um, there's a real desire to to do the right thing and make change. So it's it's great. We we are in a very good good position moving forward. And if we turn to you know the output of what advertising agencies and communications companies do, um, I mean, you might have the best will in the world to try and create diverse images and reflect the New Zealand's population in advertising and communications campaigns. But you act on behalf of your clients, and if your clients say, well, 
we want to make the most possible money and connect as as, as well as we can with, you know, the most uh, lucrative and established parts of the market, you know, and that might be uh, a, a New Zealand European audience or an older demographic or whatever, that actually it's pretty hard to shift that if, if you're not, if, if, if your clients think it might come at a kind of commercial cost to them. If, across all of New Zealand, the clients, agencies, particularly global clients, are coming to us and, and saying, we want to see your policy on um, on diverse recruitment. We want to see your policy on um, inclusivity and diversity. So it's coming from them as well. We're well so not they actually want, they want to know what your policy is mm. before they'll, they'll work with you? They're, they're that tuned yeah. into it? It's definitely getting a stronger and stronger um, requirement from our clients that we need to be able to demonstrate that, and because in the end they they want to be connecting in the right way. To to your point, most most brands will want to be connecting with the right audience, and that's not always a premium um, audience like what you're referring to. It's targeted. It's got to do the right thing, and in order to do that, we've got to have the right starting point within our own organisation to achieve that for them. Look, back in the day, there were ads that employed racial stereotypes. I mean, I can remember one um, for apples. They had a, an ad with a, a Chinese fruiterer and making fun of his voice, his accent, for example, and that was regarded as a bit harmless at the time, a bit comic. It just wouldn't fly today. Does there even need to be vigilance about that sort of thing these days in, in, in advertising campaigns, or is that a thing of the past now? Yes, of course, we've still got to be vigilant. I mean, I'm not saying we're going to get it right every time, but we need to make sure that we are putting the right processes in place to make sure that we're taking care of our cultures within New Zealand and doing the right thing and talking to all of our people in the right way. Mm. But these days you'd assume no no brand would want that and suggest it in the first not. place and no creative would come up with it. No, of, of course not. And But we've just got to stay on top of this and make sure that um, we're all doing the right thing. That was Megan Clark-Cook, managing partner of the Wonderman Thompson Agency in Auckland and the current chair of the New Zealand Commercial Communications Council's Inclusiveness and Diversity Group. And you can hear more of what she had to say in the online version of the story. Just look for the title, The Ad Industry Confronts Its Diversity Deficit. Nearly four months have passed since the day New Zealand's biggest magazine maker by far, Bauer Media, stunned its own staff and infuriated its own customers by claiming that the COVID-19 Level 4 lockdown meant it had no option but to shut the business down entirely and try and find buyers for its titles. Now those included big names in our national culture, The Listener for example, in print since 1939, and the New Zealand Woman's Weekly, also more than 80 years old. And the current affairs glossies also, Metro and North and South, created by legendary editors Warwick Roger and Robin Langwell back in the 1980s. More than 300 people lost their jobs back then in April when the magazines vanished from shop shelves and subscribers' mailboxes without notice. And as weeks went by, the names of possible and potential buyers appeared in the news, along with news stories saying that the process wasn't going very well. But then, in June, Australia-based private equity firm Mercury Capital announced that it would be acquiring the Bauer Company's magazines. Last week, Bauer announced that many of those magazines, including Woman's Day, New Zealand Woman's Weekly, the Australian Woman's Weekly New Zealand, The Listener and Air New Zealand's in-flight magazine Kia Ora, will all resume publishing immediately. 
However, other lifestyle titles like Next, Taste, Fashion Quarterly, Home and Simply You would not be resuming immediately. They're still being assessed for sale, the statement said. And Bauer's statement also said the New Zealand business would have around 40 local editorial and advertising personnel and would be headed up by Bauer's former general manager, Stuart Dick. This week we asked for an interview with Stuart Dick to ask, what's the plan? Subscribers will be keen to know just what the magazines might look like and read like when they're back. Well, Stuart Dick thanked us for our interest, but referred us to Bower Head Office across the Tasman, where Brendan Hill is still the Australian New Zealand CEO, and he remains in this role under the new ownership. Yeah, look, they sold uh, both the Australian and the New Zealand businesses a going concern to Mercury Capital, an investment firm, it's actually based in, based in New Zealand. Those guys uh, took over ownership uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, and then decided to reinstate and republish the, the titles they bought in New Zealand. Uh, they, yeah, they're right, they did sell two to two uh, individual publishers, um, North and South and Metro. Uh, immediately announced we'll restart uh, most of the, the, the larger titles, and then they're still looking either to restart the other ones or to sell them to private individuals as well. Okay, but in terms of Bauer Media's involvement and executives like yourself, um, you're still pulling the strings over there? Yeah, yeah, look, I'm CEO of both countries still, and um, yep, I've appointed Stuart in New Zealand to be GM, along with Sarah Henry, who'll be the editorial director there. So, um, and they're busy together, getting together a team, a strong team of, of journalists to get back in, on the magazine. So, yeah, Mercury's left uh, the current management team in place. Yeah, so how is this going to work, though? Because uh, there were some uh, around about 250 people who effectively lost their jobs when Bauer shut down in early April here in New Zealand. Now the release says um, Stuart and Sarah and the team will be about 40 strong. I mean, who who are they? Have they already been recruited? No, they were, they've started getting recruited um, since we announced. So there's quite a few people starting on Monday, I believe. Uh, then we'll just build the, the people up as we get the new office space ready, which will be another two weeks away. Okay, so there'll be an office, so there will be an actual HQ and the journalists can work out of there. But if there's 40 and previously there were, what, 250 staff of the, the former Bauer Media New Zealand, um, does that mean that effectively a lot of the production work and indeed a lot of the journalism will actually be in Australia and, you know, some of these titles are effectively going to be Australian published titles? No, no, it will be exactly the same as they were prior. Um, there was quite a long tail of smaller titles in that business in New Zealand, and that they all were very big advertising models. So the advertising department um, had a lot of people in it, uh, which we don't need that many anymore. Uh, and also there was all the operational work. So all the, all the content would be created in New Zealand, the advertising sold there, but the back-end operations such as finance and human resources, and, uh, circulation, all those um, functions will be provided from the Australian team. Okay, and presumably the printing will be done here too, right? Because you know the Mercury Capital Company owned the basically the, the the printer that published a lot of those titles. Yeah, we had a we have a long long standing relationship with Webstar, who have been our printers for the last decade. So yeah, they'll they'll continue on with the printing. Okay, so the likes of the statement uh, last week said uh, the likes of Woman's Day, New Zealand Woman's Weekly, uh, the New Zealand Listener, and others uh, would resume publishing immediately. Was uh, the phrase used, um, but w- w- I mean, when, when exactly will they roll off the presses? I mean, if you're still only just beginning to recruit and some of those people just starting next week, um, they won't be ready yet, will they? No, it'll be early September was the announcement date, yeah, so that's when all the subscriptions will be um, back in the mailboxes. And how closely will these resemble uh, the magazines that people were buying um, before the shutdown of the company here in early April? Because a lot of the staff 
you know, have left. A lot of Bauer staff actually set up their own editorial operations. Um, one or two have even started, a, a, you know, a magazine of their own. So um, it's not going to be the same, is it? Yeah, yeah, it will be. Um, <laughs> a lot of the people have um, been really delighted to come back. So we're, we're really um, delighted with the team we've put together. It's all ex-employees, so that's really good uh, in that regard. And I think the magazines that you see as they were prior will be exactly the same now in terms of the pagination, the quality of the content, the contributors we have, the art directors, the journalists, etc., will be back as they were. Uh, the only the one other big thing is that during this kind of lockdown period, Women's Day New Zealand and Australian Weekly New Zealand um, hasn't had a lot of New Zealand content in them because it had to be produced from Australia over that period. Um, so then those two magazines, which are two of the biggest titles in the country, uh, will be back uh, in that New Zealand editorial office and they'll be having the same amount of New Zealand content as they had prior. Yeah, some of the readers uh, didn't respond well to that hybrid that didn't have a lot of Kiwi content. Some of the some of the talkback was a, a, a little harsh about those editions. Yeah, it was a pretty tough time for us, and I, I hope they understand what we've um, always had a plan to try and bring them back, either under a, a new ownership or with someone else owning them. So we just wanted to keep them going, and, and now we want to improve them. Yeah, so when you go on, for example, the subscription website MagShop uh, in New Zealand, uh, that has indeed been updated to say September is when a lot of these publications will be will be back and ready, and subscribers will get their issues and that interim period where there weren't any uh, will be added on to their subscriptions. But, I mean, have you had to pay out a lot of New Zealand subscribers because people did complain that the company was sitting on money, people have paid up front? Yeah, I agree. And look, anyone could get a refund at any time, and they still can. Um, so yeah, anyone that requested a refund, we processed that and they got their money back. So that, that was ongoing throughout the whole period. And But have you lost a fair few who've said, sorry, I'm, I'm out, and, you know, yeah, they... Yeah. they Yep, a fair few people did want refunds, which is completely understandable. Um, so hopefully they can, um, now they say we're going again, hopefully they'll resubscribe again. Mm. When you say a fair few, do you know how many would have dropped out? Oh, you're talking in the, in the low, low, under 10%, well under, probably around five, I think. About, of existing subscribers to those titles. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, finally, you mentioned there the team being recruited and some former staffers, uh, you know, back in some roles. C- can you tell us who they are? Because New Zealanders would love to know who's editing and, and writing for those publications. I think, I'm sorry, I think we're still about another three or four days away. They've got their contracts, but they haven't signed them yet. So uh, be early next week we'll be able to make some announcements around that team. That was Brendan Hill, the Australia-New Zealand Chief Executive of Bauer Media, based in Sydney, who's still in charge of New Zealand magazines, including the New Zealand Listener and New Zealand Woman's Weekly, which Bauer Media has sold to the private equity company Mercury Capital. Last week's announcement also said that two Bauer magazines have been on-sold to independent local owners here. Auckland entrepreneur Simon Chesterman has acquired Metro, and a couple of journalists from Germany based in Auckland, Konstantin Richter and Verena Friedrika Hassel, have bought North and South. This week, Nine to Noon's media commentator Andrew Holden, a former newspaper editor himself, said this was great news. I mean, what I love about it is you've got, you know, in the midst of pain and, and some chaos, if you've like. We've got new people coming into, yeah. the, into the business um, who'll bring a different mindset. And next weekend here on Media Watch, you can hear about the different mindset of the new owners of North and South magazine, who, just like the company that closed it down in April, happened to be from Germany. 
I think it's a bit of an unfortunate coincidence that the people who close North and South down were Germans just like us. So I do hope that we're not being seen as just another bunch of Germans taking over. I hope we're being seen as who we are, not a big company, just the two of us. And people who've been journalists all, all their lives who care about journalism and to know what good journalism is and who are, who are willing to take a risk because we're keen to save something that we think is worth saving. This is the quintessential New Zealand magazine, so we're looking for a, a team here of, of New Zealanders who will do this magazine. We'd like to give back to this country by making sure that one of its best magazines comes back to life. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week, but the team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.